If you're able, we're going to read in Ephesians chapter 2 and chapter 4. I'm going to be reading from the ESV, and I'll start in verse 17 of chapter 2. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now turn to chapter 4. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up and love. You may be seated. Thank you, Denny. Give thanks for you and Becky and your boys. So we turn again today to think about this question that uh, a body like ours must return to again and again, and that is, what is the church? Uh, what exactly are we doing here? That you will get those Friday emails, and you'll be seeing all kinds of things happening. There's college ministries and seminars and different groups meeting. You say, what are we doing? What are we aiming at? See, the church isn't, as some might say, it'd be a very low view of the church to think it's the place you come once a week for a seminar, that uh, Shaw talks for about 25 minutes to make us know a little bit more about the Bible. You say, well, th there's some truth to that, but if that's it, you say it's a very shallow view that the church is God's people on the move, that he's given us a mission, that we, we have a, a great calling. And if you read, it's, it's quite sobering, right? I put those in the notes two consecutive weeks, that there are many occasions where God's people come together and God's not pleased. 
that they've reduced what they're doing to just you know, some kind of formula or their hearts are in the wrong place. You say there's a way to do church and to do it incorrectly. And so what we're saying is the church has a mission. What's our mission? Let's lay down some track here so we can all move in one direction together. And I thought about this, you know, a long time, a lot of mentors in my life. The, 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 as I, you look at the, the whole course of, of history in the Bible as it's given to us, I, I think the mission of a church is very simple. You could think in terms of E squared, E to the second power, two E words, edification and evangelism. What are we doing here? Well, those of us who are converted, right, that we've surrendered to Christ, we've seen our sin, said, There's, I need a Savior. We've recognized that in Jesus. We've been reconciled to God through his blood. You say, what we're uh, doing for one another is building each other up in that faith, that we trust that God, as he's called his covenant community together, that we can mature in the faith, become more and more like Jesus, more confident in our faith, bearing more Christ-like fruit. You see, that journey of being more like Jesus um, is a lifetime journey. Say, none of us arrive this side of heaven, but God in his grace has given us one another to build each other up in faith. And you say, we just read, right? Did you catch it? Uh, this great chapter four uh, of Ephesians on the church, how many times that language of building up. Uh, we're here so that you might be built up in Christ. See, that's another word for edification. Or you think, you know, something like Colossians 1.28. Paul's whole mission is to present the people of God mature in Christ. That's what we're about, edifying one another, building one another up in faith. That's the first E. Second E is evangelism. That the people of God are to put on display to a, a watching world what it's like to have Jesus as king. Where, you know, where to be those who say, you know, those folks really understand grace. Look at how different they are. I mean, they're kind to one another. They say they've recognized their own sinfulness. They've recognized what Jesus has done. They sincerely love each other out of the strength that he provides. What do they have that I'm lacking? I want some of that. And we say, well, we have the Lord Jesus. That from the Old Testament, Israel to the church now say it's always been the mission of the church, the mission of the people of God to tell those who don't know Jesus what it's like to be in his kingdom. So there it is. You want to say, you ask somebody, what do you think you're doing being a part of Providence Church? I'd like to think right away you'd say, well, for those of us who are Christians, we're built up into full maturity in Jesus. And for those who don't know Jesus, we're thinking about how to present who he is and why he's such a wonderful king. We edify and we evangelize. That's what we do. Now, we have taken it a step further, right, what we're doing these seven weeks, to what we can say is how do you behavioralize the mission? So you can say, I can say the mission to edify and evangelize, but why are we doing all this stuff? And last week, what I, what I tried to do, so much to say, so little time, but when the church gets instruction, it's, it's presumed that, that the members of the church, just as we read in the statement, the members of the church are really committed to Jesus, now, you might think that's not much of a point, but you see, I think we can get so lost. Again, church is the place you come to hear the talk, or it's a place to get some nice values. You know, we all want our kids to learn honesty, and where do you get that? You know, well, maybe it's the church. You know, you get the idea here, but, but the idea, again, it's founded on the principle that the people in the church are genuinely committed to Jesus, that we've recognized our sin, we've recognized our need, we've recognized God's provision in Jesus, and we want to leave, to use Ephesians 4 language, right, leave the old man behind, that that old man keeps cropping up in my life, the selfishness, the ambition, say the, the unkind words, you say he's there, every day of my life he's cropping up, and say, well, Paul starts, say, put that old man away, 
and remember to put on Jesus. Turn towards him, live for him. Life's about him. So the foundation of the church, as you'll see in our schematic, right, the foundation of all the behaviors that we have starts with a, a real commitment to Christ, recognizing who he is, that it's a lifetime posture of our need for Jesus. So we move then, I think, to the, well, to the first pillar, which is corporate worship. Very practical. What are we doing here? I mean, it, it's Sunday morning. You look at your watch or whatever. You, you say, just know it's Sunday. I know Sunday that I go to church. Do we ask the question, why? No, the Stats on this are striking. This is even 10 years ago, so the question was asked, do you think that a person can be a good Christian if he or she doesn't attend church? So no surprise here that 88% of those who didn't attend church regularly, so, you know, this 88% of those who didn't attend church regularly said, yes, you can be a perfectly good Christian, have nothing to do with the church. And no surprise there, those people um, are voting consistently with their behavior. But here's the part that is shocking. 70% of those who regularly attend church said church is not important. They say, well, we've done a very terrible job. When I say we, I really mean clergy. Now, how can this be that so many self-identifying Christians would have such a low view of the gathered church? Now, some of this we know is self-inflicted, that all of you... You're an impressive congregation. You're involved in different, you know, very professional settings. The, the, the social organizations that you belong to are very well run. And then you come to some church, the pastor's an absolute knucklehead, the, the organization's dysfunctional. You say, these people are way worse than anything I've ever found in the secular world. Why in the world would I want to yoke myself to these? So some of it, I agree with you, has been self-inflicted on the part of knucklehead clergy. But there's another part of this, and that is we've not really given the why. How do you answer this? Well, why do you go there? Why are you a part of that church family? I hope in the upcoming minutes we can unfold this right from Ephesians to say, oh, i got some really concrete reasons here as to why I get up on Sunday morning and why I go to be with those people and why it's actually vital and really important and, in fact, a gift to me to do so. So turn your attention again, Ephesians 4. We'll kind of be uh, jumping to two a bit, if, if uh, you will. But the first couple of verses of Ephesians 4, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy. So live your lives in accordance with what it means to be a Christian, of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. So certainly a rhetorical device of emphasizing one, but did you notice, too, the word call? Say, so when we talk about call, there's always what we'd say a, a vertical dimension that all of us are called to God and Jesus, right? He's the caller, capital C, that he calls down, say he quickens my life, he turns my stony heart into one that will pay attention to him, that will surrender to Jesus, that we absolutely are called to God first in Christ. But as soon as Paul gets that out, you say, where, is, where does the passage turn? It turns to, to a corporate setting of other people who know God. Humility and gentleness and being loving towards one another. In other words, it seems as if, yes, we're called to God and Jesus, but then we're called to God's covenant family. How are we supposed to practice these one another's? You say, certainly it's good to be loving to non-Christians during the week. Say, absolutely, that's something a Christian. We ought to be humble rather than prideful. We ought to be gentle rather than rude. Say, all those are very good postures to take to the non-believing world, but the one another in love is clearly stressed 
towards the people of God. In other words, we're called not only to God, but to be a part of his people. Now, you go through again. You read the Bible as I have. You just start, read through it. God's people always assemble. That the Israelites, right? God's called out ones. What a local church is. God's called out ones. They assemble together, often sat under, under the word of God. Jesus, remember, Peter declares him to be the Christ. And what does Jesus say? Say, I'm the rock of the declaration of who I am, that I'm going to build my church. Jesus says that he's going to build his church, that we belong to Jesus. What he means is he's going to build up a body of people for himself. Paul's epistles, the very one that we're reading, right? It's addressed to a group of people who are together. The letter would have been publicly read. In other words, God's people always assemble that he calls us to that. Say, the assembly of God's people is not man-made. I was talking to Denny this week. You say, you take a step back. You think of everything that we've done. Think of all the jobs we can do, which are important, and all the organizations we can be a part of, all the things that I've written, all the things that we do. I'd say, there's only all those institutions. None of those institutions are going to be everlasting. Say, there is an institution that we're told is everlasting. It's the assembled group of God's people. That Jesus builds his people. And the people will be in eternity with him. You say, that's very so. Say, oh, not, not to say, we don't want you to take away that we're not to give all of our effort in the outside world. Absolutely we are. That's a good Christian thing to do. But the church is precious. Jesus is building the church. It's not man-made. He's building us up. And to go back to chapter 2, what was read, you say, you get a couple of images about a Sunday morning gathering. Say two very clear pictures. Notice first, verse 19, Ephesians 2, 19. So then you, plural, are no longer strangers and aliens away from God, but your fellow citizens with the saints, that's other believers, and members of the household of God. So when I think about the church here, you know, in a line like that, you have the gold standard and you think, well, are we ever going to get there? In other words, the church is a family. The church is the family of God. Ian was so strong a few weeks ago on the, the unity of the church. I recommend you go back and listen to that. But to, to press this a bit, to say, think about that, that, that Paul's not searching for language. Say, what do I call these people? You know, you know, I guess I'll call them brothers and sisters. No, I think he really means it. That the way a church should see each other's vulnerabilities, to um, complement one another and strengths and weaknesses that as we get to know each other, delight in each other's company, we can't know everyone equally. But the idea really is to be a family. So whatever you make of the church, you say, that'd be a wonderful thing. Say, not a corrupt institution, but what if it was a real family? What if it's a place where I could really be loved, where there'd be grace and kindness, and I knew that we were building each other up in Christ's love? That's the idea here. We get together because we're the family of God. Who wouldn't want a family? Maybe you don't have a great family, and you're thinking, well, I, I, yeah, my family's been nothing but a nightmare for me, but I think all of us deep down, you say, what, what's a better gift in this life than a loving family? To have people close by you that will love you unconditionally, that will, um, you know, work through conflict in a healthy way. Say, so all the things that come with a great family, should that not be the church? That's the kind of family we want to be, right? The real household of God, brothers and sisters, depending on each other. Also here, Chapter 2, again, both of these separate messages, kind of a violent clash of imagery, right? Your fellow citizens with the saints, members of the family of God, but then a pivot to a building. 
that were built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, right? The proclamation of the word of God in whom the whole structure, right? Jesus is the chief cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows as a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place by the spirit of God, that we're a building. Say, so you ever think of that? Say, what if each one of us is, is, is you know, a brick in a building? You say, if you take out some of the bricks, the the whole edifice is going to be a bit wobbly. But we're being built together as this great structure. Why? Because God is building us that he wants to dwell among us. The point is, and I, I, I got to be careful here because of what we've been through. No, no literate reader of the Bible could walk away thinking that God's people ought not assemble regularly. It's what God has called us to do. He's building us up. He wants us to be together, and in and through that, that he's going to mature us, that the, the church, if you will, is a gift from God. It's not an onerous burden. Hopefully, prayerfully, it's like a family. It's a great edifice where his presence is. And again, why do I say I have to be careful there? I don't want this in any way to be a critique on anyone who stayed home during the pandemic. That's what we all did. You say, when, what happened there? You think about why it was so tricky to be... Uh, thinking about the church in 2020 is, you know, tough decisions are never between a good decision and a bad decision. You say those are easy decisions to make. Hard decisions are when there are two competing biblical goods. So on the one hand, you say, I definitely see the biblical good of corporate worship as I'm talking about today. God commands us to do it against the competing good of loving one another and looking out for one another's health. Say both of those are very Christian, deeply biblical ideas. So please don't hear, well, Shaw's hammering us today about the necessity of meeting together. I, I, I am in a way, but not as a critique of the pandemic. I'm just trying to show us that the people of God, when given the opportunity, are to assemble because God calls us to that and he uses it for our maturity and for his glory. glory. If I could just summarize the, the point here. If the church is valuable to Jesus, called his body and his bride, should it not be valuable to us Christians? Lots of bad examples out there, I know. But I hope deep down we say the church matters to Jesus. And I'm a follower of Jesus. And I want the church to be the best as it's laid out. I'd love for it to be a loving family. I'd like to think about the people here as being, you know, kind of standing side by side in that firm structure, you know, different people linked together with mortar to say we're an edifice as God would build us up. Say what an image of love and of strength. God calls us to meet together, and it's a great gift for us. Okay, let's go a bit further here. Thanks for Pastor Caleb for the second point here. God's presence dwells uniquely in our assembly. Now you ask this, is that true? I mean, you, 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 uh, you know, it's kind of silly, but all of us know you're raised in Sunday schools. Is there any place you can go in the world where God can't find you? I mean, you, you think of all the places across the globe and say, well, now God can't see me. You say, no, we know God is omnipresent is the word that we would use. Say, there's no place I can go where God is not. He's there everywhere. However, God amazingly can be particularly present where he wants to be. And we're told that God is present when his people come together. Did you catch the end of chapter 2, right? The bit on the building. So here we are. Jesus is the cornerstone. The foundation is the proclamation, the preachers, right? The apostles and the prophets laying out what God has done in Jesus. Jesus is the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. And then we get, in him you're also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
that when a person becomes a Christian, right, when we surrender to God on his terms, which is recognizing Jesus as the Savior, that we receive God's Spirit, that God's Spirit is in the Christians, is in the Christian. And when the Christ follower comes together, right, God says, not only have I commanded you to do that, but now all my Christ followers are, are there, right, that it's a dwelling place, it's a special dwelling place for me that I'm really working there. So Jesus will say things like this. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now, I'd say it'd be a very bad reading. You say, well, do we understand that, that when I'm alone, Jesus is not with me? You say, that's not what he's saying, is it? He's saying that when my people come together and they're lifting up the name of the Lord, they're, they're proclaiming the truth as God has revealed it, right? We're putting God on display, putting Jesus on display. When we say, God, we want you to have your way among us, that he dwells here particularly and goes to work on those who have submitted to him in that end. I think an example of this would be, I hear this probably more often than you, so I share it with you. One of the, the most moving things about being a preacher is how you can, you can speak to a full room and then nearly every week someone will come, you know, I don't know how you knew exactly what I needed this week. I say, well, I had no idea what you needed this week. I say, what we're trying to do is open up God's word. You say, we, we expect that, right? Say, we want God to challenge us and convict us and motivate us to say, that's exactly the thing that I needed. Oh yeah, I've come back to reality here. Out, out there, I've been all lost and looking out for myself, but I've come back here. God's spirit has moved among us, right? For, for, there is one spirit that unites us, that God is having his way here. And I suppose it's appropriate here, again, because I don't think we talk about this enough. What do I think that I'm doing when I'm preaching? And what does our culture say that preaching is? Almost universally a negative word now, isn't it? Don't preach at me, that kind of thing. Culture thinks preaching is one guy giving a kind of TED talk, telling everybody else how to do something a bit better. So that, if that's what we think, the pastors are like the most arrogant people of all. Uh, for 52 weeks that I would think that I, I can stand up here and tell any of you what to do with your lives or to do anything at, at all a bit better. Say, I, I would be very sad if, if anybody thought that's what I, I think that I'm doing when I'm preaching. Here's what I think that I'm doing. It's the assembled people of God sitting under the word of God, working it out together so that we can build each other up in this truth. Sermons are not monologues. You might think they are. Say, so only one guy is talking, you know, maybe, maybe a child or something. Say, no. Sermons are dialogical. I hope you say you're following the passage. You're reading Ephesians 2. You say, look at that. Look, we are called the building. We are called the household. How am I going to apply that? Say, how does God want me to? What's my role in this? Again, Ephesians 4. Say, what does it mean to act as a church family? You get the idea. It's the assembled people of God sitting under the word of God with the expectation that he's going to use it to all of our benefits. Not one person telling everybody else how to do it, but with the expectation that God is going to work. You know, with that, I'll say, why is the church different? So you get that objection, right? The objection is, well, why is the church any different than any other social club? I mean, I'm a part, you know, I Lakewood Country Club, and we have these special events, and there's a lot of people in a room, and sometimes there's an engaging talk or something. Or I'm in Apollo's Fire, and oftentimes there's a nice lecture beforehand on what the instrument, the period instruments are about, or whatever it might Say, so we all know what these social clubs Why is the church different? The church is different because God goes to work on us here, that he moves us that he convicts us and encourages us that this assembly is about God. And again, a thanks to Pastor Caleb. Say, if this is true, 
right? If this is true, that this is the place where God really goes to work on us, then what's happening here is primarily not about me. Really tough these days in a me-centered culture, but think about it this way. This means that when I'm in church, I want to be pleasing rather than be pleased. I want to be pleasing to God and pleasing to the people rather than here be pleased. And it's such an American thing to want to be pleased. Well, I don't like this, and I like that, and I'm in an argument with that person, and, you know, me, 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 and I absolutely have that default setting. I really do. But to say, no, God is moving among us. May he have his way. May we be pleasing to him and bring him glory. Want him to use us, to move it just as easily. He could say, you know, that church is way off. I'm not, I'm not using, you know, he can, he can do that. Say, Lord, we posture ourselves underneath you. We want to honor you. Move us the way you want to move us. So why do you come to church? God calls us to assemble. as it, It's really a gift to us to build us up. God dwells uniquely in our assembly. Now, thirdly, importantly, you catch this wonderful, wonderful image of the church as the body, don't you? Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for the building up of the body. Then again from 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, for whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. With each part is working properly, makes the body grow so it builds itself up in love. You can't miss it. What are we like? We're like a human body. Why is this such a profound illustration of our assembly? Because it tackles the great philosophical question of unity and diversity. You say, what's a human body? All of us sit here embodied. You could say, I'm one thing. Say, I'm, I'm not multiple things. There's one self, and all of you are ourselves, and you're out there. But we also know, say, our bodies are very complex, aren't they? So the more we know about the body, the more impressive and complex it is. And so it is with the church. It's a beautiful image of why we assemble. We're one thing. We're moving together. We're on mission. And yet each of the parts are different and each of the parts are needed. You know, you might think of the, the person in church who annoys you the most. You say you're a you know, strong type A person. You're thinking of the, you know, the most type B person or somebody, you know, say, I never think about things. You know, the person who irritates you the most. And you say, why can't everybody be just like me? And the second that thought comes out, hopefully you'll come back to the body and think, well, wait a second. If my body was all the same part, it wouldn't be a functioning body. So I really wish my body was all lungs. I mean, just lungs all over. They say, well, then it wouldn't be a body. Say, if everybody was just like me, then, then that would be very boring indeed, that I need those, understanding that those who are different from me, as they're under Christ, are in this church family, in God's providence, to minister to somebody that I cannot possibly minister to. In the same way the human body cannot have all the organs being the same, but needs every part to be different in order to function. Likewise, you say, why is the body great? Because it shows our interdependence. That each bit of the body relies on other parts of the body. You know, I'm a big, big fan of baseball. And uh, I, me ever calling the Indians by their new name, not out of stubbornness, just default, it's going to be very hard for me to be patient. It may not happen in my time here, but Aaron Savali... <clears throat> One of our pitchers, 10 and 2, winning his pitcher in the American League. In June, he got a strain in his, uh, this knuckle of his right middle finger. Hasn't pitched since. Best pitcher in the league. was on, on pace for that. And you say, you look at that. He's a great athlete. I mean, he's fantastic. Surely that little sprain in his knuckle. 
So, but you think about what you have to do. So point is, is, you shut down. It's a little bit like that in the church. You say, you might think somebody, well, you know, that little knuckle in the church and nobody cares about, but you know what? We suffer those. The whole body suffers. I love walking in every Sunday morning. I come in through the back today, look in the children's room, Jamie, Haybeck, and Dawn working hard to get all the teachers and the kids lined up in the different classrooms. I make my way down. I see John and Sandy Mancuso, and they're doing the coffee, and then I come a bit further, and Lisa's helping set up the communion, and there's Marilyn and David Mercado and Sally Marty doing the greeting, and then I come into the booth and see the guys back there working the buttons. I have no idea how to... I said, this is it. This is it. You can't have a church with a dysfunctional children's ministry. You can't have an unfriendly church. You can't have a church that can't, you know, can't distribute the community. What's the point? Say every part of the body is interdependent. And when one part of the body suffers, we're all going to suffer. Say, why do I gather? Because I've been called to this place as one who thinks Jesus is king, that God's given me the church as a gift, that I'm here to build others up and to participate, knowing that I'm an interdependent piece of a body that wants to be healthy. And as I close, I go... So many things to, to say to you about this, but you know, you're, you're not a Christian today. And you're thinking about everything that I've said, and you might have a very low view of the church. You know, you read the news and say, there, you know, another pastor off the rails, another church, you know, elders blowing it, whatever you might think. Today I just say, look at look at all the church can be. Say, wouldn't it be wonderful? Wouldn't it be wonderful to have a group of people that's really surrendered to Christ? really loves each other each one of us playing our part not thinking that we're better than the other parts but actually each of us is vital so i hope if that's you today you're thinking about jesus say, i know that this is not some reading club or a sports club or, or whatever but to say god is on the move here and today would be the day to say you know what it's not just about the church but i recognize jesus is different and i can be called and reconciled to god through him as i confess my sin and also called into a body of believers who will love me it's a great thing. People get ready to go to college. You know, these young people, I say, you remember at your institutions, there's a church family who loves you very much. Say, we're going to miss you very much because we're together that God's using us. And what better way now, church family, is we're going to celebrate this with the Lord's Supper. Again, the very word, communion. It's something we don't do on our own, but it's something we do as a church family. It's a reminder, yes, of what Christ has done for us, but also that we've been called together. We declare this truth. So as Jim and the team come up, may we posture ourselves uh, in preparation for communion. Then after the first song, I will come up and lead communion. But again, why are you here on Sunday morning? Well, God's called me to it. The church is a gift. God's presence dwells uniquely here. He can go to work on us. And we're a body that works together into full maturity to bring about God's will. Lord, I thank you for this image here. All too many examples, bad examples of the church or we just kind of casually think it's the place where you go to get the Bible talk. Help us to see that we need to be on mission, that we're under your authority, that we, we move together, that there's something to accomplish here, and that as we, as we believe in your sovereignty, as we said last week, you brought us to times and places that you've called us here. Well, if the, the body's true, then we have a role to play. As we prepare for communion, to think that all this is possible by jesus making a way lord that old man cropping up in my life selfish on my own help me to be a better follower of you better brother in this church family 
May this sink in deep. May we really understand our purpose here every Sunday morning. May Christ be honored. Lord, may you have your way. Amen. Let's stand and continue to worship our great God together. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall and bring forth a royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Bring
that matchless king of glory came down for us. And God has given us the great sign of that truth. And so communion is for all those who've trusted in Jesus, for all those who've recognized their sin, that we've incurred the wrath of God by neglecting our maker, and who've surrendered to Christ. And so if you're not a Christian, I ask that you wouldn't take communion because you've not made this truth in the very foundation of your life, that communion is something that Christians do. But for Christians, say what a wonderful truth it is to be reminded and nourished of what Christ has done. And really, um, we have some instruction in preparation of taking the Lord's Supper. And the first thing we're told to do is to examine ourselves. In other words, to confess our sins. Say, I think back this week and things I've said, things I've done, the lack of self-control, could have been kinder to Mallory, my children. Maybe some things that the culture says are, are bigger sins. See, but now's our time to, in a moment of quiet, to confess our sins before the Lord Jesus. So shall we do that? As we confess, we have that wonderful assurance of pardon because after all, what do these elements signify but the broken body and the spilled blood of Jesus? We think back to that cross of what he did for us, knowing that we're cleansed by his blood. So what a wonderful and comforting truth it is. We also think about our church family. As I said a moment ago, that we have been given the gift of one another. <laughs> May we act like it. That we take this together because God's called us here in this time and this place to mature one another, to bring him glory. And lastly, we think about going out into the world and proclaiming this. So if you would, you take off the top tab of your communion cups. For I receive what the Lord has delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread... And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We take the bread together. If you take back the second tab now. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We take the cup together, the cleansing blood of Christ. We thank the Lord for that sign that we'd be inwardly nourished, that we'd be ever more aware of his grace and the sacrifice he made. And in that, we're going to end on a very triumphant hymn, uh, lifting high the name of Jesus for all that he's done for us. May we live it out for him.